Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. We will be uh, continuing uh, this section before we ended up in uh, verse 25 last week, uh, looking at this, um, this psalm, this song uh, found in 2 Samuel 22, this uh, end period of six individual stories all tied together and all heightening towards these, these songs or poems as we'll look at next week with the last words of David in the beginning of chapter 23. All looking at David's reign. What did David accomplish in the end of his reign? Where did it end up? Where did it? Where was it going? Uh, what was God doing? And here we see David uh, writing a song uh, to the Lord, as we read in verse one, that David spoke to the Lord with the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So it was a. It was speaking about God. Uh, you might say praising God of what he has done, but it also speaks about God, um, who he is. Uh, how did God and uh, work during David's reign? And we've been dividing this up into 14 parts, and many of these parts flow together, as even we'll see today and uh, tonight. But we see uh, David speaking this to God. It uh, it's almost a you know a one-to-one uh, song that David writes to the Lord, how he has dealt with him over the course of his um, uh, his uh, kingship, his reign. Uh, so we find ourselves in verse twenty-six this evening, uh, part eight, you might say, and this part is um, spoken to God, uh, Yahweh. You reward the just with your loyalty. We see this in verses 26 to verse 30. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. You save the humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord. And the God lightens my God lightens my darkness, and uh, for by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. So here we see David uh, teaches us this plain and simple truth that uh, we have a hard time grasping our heads around, or we have an easy time grasping our heads around, but often in either time, we might not grasp our minds around this uh, concept fully, but this is the concept or the principle that God deals and relates to us how we act, and he relates to others how they act. Now, that sounds a bit uh, controversial, maybe. Now, we need to understand that this does not mean it is the covenant of works, that God only acts in a certain way when we do a certain thing. That uh, the covenant of works was based about, upon man's perpetual and perfect obedience. I.e., you need to obey God's law perfectly for this outcome to happen. So you see that that is a covenant of works. So you need to do this thing for certain things to happen. Now, under a period of grace, which I believe is summarized really well in, in the period of the time of Noah, 
where we see this general grace around and abounding in everyone. That God shows all of his creation mercy. That we understand that if we go underneath the covenant of works, that every sin deserves the wrath and curse of God paid out in full at that very time. But we all have this period of grace in which God shows us this mercy in which we're all called to be able to repent from our sins. That still every sin deserves the wrath and curse in God, but we are all given time to be able to repent from those things. And here David explains that his, he is responsible to God for how he has acted. His actions are accountable, he is, he is accountable to God for his actions. But also others are then accountable to God for their actions as well. Like last week we kind of looked at this, uh, this understanding as he says that he was blameless before him. He kept himself from guilt. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. That he still understands that he is not perfect, but he has sought to live a life that seeks to honor and glorify God in the way he acts, in the way that he approaches things. He is able to say to Saul, what have I done wrong to you? Tell me. Or Samuel at the end of his ministry where he says, Have I taken anything from you? Do I owe you anything? Have I sinned against you? It's not that Samuel claims to be sinless, but in his approach and his walk, he is sought to be able to honor God in the way that he has done so. David does understand that he needs mercy. He understands that as we looked at last week in Psalm 51. Be merciful to me, O God. But he also understands that sometimes the rain falls on the property of the, that, is, that is owned by the wicked and also those who are believers. Drought comes to both. But David at this point is not saying that he has walked this perfect life. With a merciful, you show yourself merciful. Yes. That he understands that God is merciful. And this is something that God shows him, but it's also something David aspires to do as well. Now, some have understood this this, uh, song or psalm in Psalm 18 to be referring to before Bathsheba. So they say that this song or psalm, however you want to call it, is written in the period of time, maybe 2 Samuel chapter 5. He is king. He's been anointed as king. He's king. The Lord has dealt well with him maybe after chapter 7. And, and But he hasn't had that great horrendous sin yet. So he's able to say, I, I'm not too bad. But we don't necessarily, our theology doesn't then make us, force us to move back behind Bathsheba. If we understand that David is referring to his uh, general obedience, not his perfect obedience. That he is uh, blameless in the sense that he has dealt well. I think a good example of this is often that those people that take the higher ground, you might say. It's not that they acted uh, perfectly in every situation, but their character throughout all the trials and tribulations proves a testament to how they've handled themselves during that time in contrast to someone else who gets low and dirty and tries to fight them. Now, you could spend a, a lot more time on many of these verses, but a good example, I think, of this is found in verse 28. 
You save a humble person, but your eyes are on the haughty. You bring them down. Now, this is a great uh, example of how the kingdom of God often works. The kingdom principle is that often it is that we are brought low. And when we are brought low, we honor God. When we show forth our weaknesses, as Paul puts forth, when I am weak, he is strong. And this is how the kingdom is, that often the world seeks to elevate the people that are high up, exalted, who claim to be high up, you might say. But really, it is the lowly that God lifts up. But this is also, as we looked at, an answer to prayer, as we saw in Hannah's prayer. This is exactly what Hannah prayed right at the very beginning of chapter uh, in Second First Samuel. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. So again, here we see Hannah, the lowly wife, you know, the one that is despised by the other, who is worthless in the eyes of the, the world, is how they see uh, Hannah. But she is lowly, but she is the one that the Lord exalts. She is the one that the Lord brings up, as you even see connections from this to Mary's Magnificat. But this is even how God relates to us today. Think about the Sermon of the Mount, where he goes through and he explains. And he teaches them, blessed are who? All of these things are not high and lifted up in the eyes of the world. He said, blessed are the poor of spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the ones who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure of heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you on all, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. All of these things have, have this, you are blessed, although the world might say that you are low. Even you notice there when we're thinking back to Second Samuel again, where it says there, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And what does David say in verse 26? With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. So this is not some form of Old Testament idea where God relates to us how we relate to him, and God relates to others how they relate to him and his people. It's a principle that flows throughout. Now, we need to be cautious to be able to then formulate some form of equation to be able to say this is what is going to happen in this life. To be able to say that if I do these certain things, God will bless me, as you see in the Sermon on the Mount, that blessed are those people But all of those things are forward-looking, right? Yours is the kingdom of heaven. They shall be blessed. They shall inherit. They shall be satisfied. They shall receive mercy. They shall see God. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Your reward is great in heaven. All of these things now, you're low here, but exalted later. Thus we see David has this theology as well in Second Samuel. Even Paul makes this point 
in Romans 4, which we'll look at more in depth in Sunday school this Lord's Day. But Paul even makes this point, that David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Paul's point here is that David even calls himself a sinner. He understands that he is a sinner, but how is he? A, if he's a sinner, he's broken the law. How can you be justified by works of the law? And he says, well, the, blessed, the people who are blessed, they're the ones who are forgiven. Your sins are covered. It's not that you kept the law perfectly, but you're forgiven and your sins are covered. The ninth part of this song is part 9, verse 31 to 35, spoken about God. Yahweh is my help in times of war. This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He, has, he made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. Here you see again that he, he is talking about this God. What a great summary. <laughs> this God, this God who I've spoken about from the rest of this song, this God, his way is perfect. That his word is true, he is a shield, he is a refuge, he is a rock. There is no other like this God that I am talking about. That when we talk about God, we do not talk about God as some, some distant being or even some form of creator that is just somewhere floating that we all can think about how we want to be able to form him. We speak about a specific God, the one and true living God, as he has revealed himself through the scriptures. And this God, as David points out, my God, as he likes to refer to him, is the one who has done these great things. This theology is, again, nothing new. As, as Whenever this is written, as David is looking back on his life, it has not changed. Remember when David confronted Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17. David said to the Philistines, You come at me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come at you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, and all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Here David claims this, as we'll look at even in the next parts of this song, that it is God who is the one who has been his rock, his refuge. He is the reason why he has seen so much victory in his life. Others referred to him as a man of war just previous to this chapter in chapter 16. The person, that young man who's just standing in the courts, this random man who suggests David as um, Saul's musician to come in and soothe, play soothing music. He says that this man is a man of valor, a man of war. 
and he comes in, and here he is, a man of war. Now, he has some form of physical skill. He serves in the military. He's commanded armies. We don't assume, as he is speaking of God delivering him and doing all these things, that he was incompetent. He would have had great skills with a sword. However, as he looks back on his life, especially his time in the military, he has said that God is his refuge, and that God is the one who has trained his hands. Now again, if we just take this, this idea and principle and say that this then applies to how we are to live our life, then we would just sit back and wait for God to be able to do things for us. This is how then we are to live. Did David then need to go to the gym to be able to be strong, to be able to lift a sword, to be able to fight? Did he need to go to practice with a sword? We don't know. I assume that David did practice. But it also speaks of how God prepared him to be a man of war. As a small boy or young adult, as he goes in to defeat Goliath, although he has not seen a lot of war, God was already preparing him in his life as a young shepherd looking after the sheep. He goes up against a great champion, a man who has seen many battles, who has won many battles. You don't get to the end and still live and lose any battles, right? This is not just... You know, I win some, you lose some. You lose some, you're gone. You're dead. So Goliath has won all of his battles, and he comes up against David, who has not seen many battles, if at all any. And David says that God has been preparing me for this, and God is going to use me in how God has prepared me to be able to defeat you. He wasn't just prepared in the military academy, but he was prepared in the fields as a shepherd. And we'll see this even in the next couple of parts or points. It brings us to part 10, verse 36 to 39. Spoken to God, your help made me prevail over my enemies. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness made me great. You gave me a wide place for my steps under me and under my feet did not and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them. I did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. Here we see David yet once more, the great and glorious king. You can understand why the people loved him, why they sang that song about David. He would have been on all the posters for all the military sign-up forms and things like this. Now, this is something that we don't necessarily think about a lot, right? Even next week, we remember him, the sweet psalmist of Israel. But do we remember him as the great king, the mighty warrior that he is? That he defeated enemies. It was his sword, his actions. He is the one that pursued them. He is the one that consumed them. He is the one who thrust his sword through his enemies. That's a hard thing for us to think about with David. We love the story of David and Goliath, but we don't necessarily love telling the rest of that story, right, when he cuts off his head. We like it more in a metaphor. 
more non-literal sense, that we don't actually like thinking about him killing people. Now again, do we ever think, oh, I would love to be more like David. And yet, David's hands covered in blood and the battlefield. Obviously, that's not us today, but we do understand they have similarities to spiritual warfare. We do not wrestle against flesh or blood. And you could assume that David had killed his tens of thousands of men. We know he killed at least 10,000. Now, that song, we don't know how accurate those young ladies were as they counted out the tally before they walked in. But again, it's not a short cry to be able to see that he killed his thousands, ten thousands at least. But David is a mighty soldier who fought in many battles. He is the one who did these things. And again, he did not have any magical powers granted to him where everyone just falls down on the ground as he walks into battle. He had to physically strike them down. And he says that God is the one that gave him strength to be able to conquer all these enemies. Now again, different times, different situations. We've talked about this in the past. But here David understands that he is the one that has done these things, but God is the one who has used him to accomplish these things. There is that principle of that God uses men and women to accomplish his means. It's not that the men and women are, are just puppets by God. God uses real men and women to be able to accomplish his means. I'm grateful for that every time I stand up in the pulpit. And I open the Bible and I start to preach or even to pray. Or, but I understand that it is God who uses sinful men and women to be able to carry about his means. Part 11, verse 40 to 43. Spoken to God, you help me to destroy my assailants. For you equip me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. Those who hated me, I, will, I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. Again, notice how David realizes that it's God who uses him. And he gives all glory to God. He understands that God is the one who has equipped him, prepared him, uses him, and thus all glory goes to him. David has nothing to be able to boast about. Verse 36, he said that your gentleness made me great. Now, I seek not to be able to go deep into this rabbit hole, but just an interesting thought to ponder. In verse 42, notice how... Uh, David Rice says, They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. So here we have in this verse, David speaking of the enemies. That's who they are in this, that they looked. And you have the Lord. They cried to the Lord, and he did not answer them. There's only two people in this verse, or two, you know, the Lord, God, and uh these people, these enemies. But notice how David points out that they cried to the Lord. 
In most translations, they're capital letters, referring to Yahweh, the covenant name of God. And this is not some generic term. It's not that they cry to their gods, or even their God, but they cry to the Lord. Again, just think about back in David's life. Saul and Absalom are two examples where they uh, are part of the covenant community. Would have been raised Israelites, gone, uh, made sacrifices. There are two great examples of the enemies that David had faced. And often they would actually invoke the name of the Lord to be able to cry out, to be able to try and get their means. They would make a vow or an oath saying, as the Lord lives, in a public setting where everyone would hear. They would use the Lord's name, but it was often done to be able to advance their needs or their means. And here David says, they cried to the Lord, they cried out to God for help. But he did not answer them. This is not speaking about David and the enemies such as Goliath, the Philistines, who blasphemed the Lord, but as the the enemies are within the the covenant community. Even maybe speaking of those who uh, fought against the anointed king. Even think about recently the, the, the large group of the Israelites that went up to fight David. And there are thousands to fight against their king. Now the truth that we saw last week in the starting verses, in verse 7, In distress I called upon the Lord, to the, my God I called, and from his temple he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. But here he says they cried to the Lord, but there was none to save them. That's an interesting thing to think about. But again, it's not just necessarily this Old Testament theology. It's something that we find in the New Testament too. John, we know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to them. Or in Peter, he warns husbands to live with their wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Or in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 50, uh, 59, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. Again, I think if we, we just simply apply this principle and think of it in, in perfect obedience terms, then God would not hear any of us. Again, David is not saying that God heard him because he was perfectly obedient and never sinned. But on the contrary, he says that these people who cry to the Lord, who were seeking to do evil things, no one did deliver them. The Lord did not listen to them. He did not answer them. James puts it this way. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So God is not guaranteed to be able to answer our prayers merely just because we are in the covenant community. 
the, within the covenant community, we have the mixture of both truth and error. We have those who are saved and those who are lost. That we don't go to church, uh, prayer and we don't pray in the, the end of our prayer in my long-standing good membership of this particular church where I've never been under discipline, amen. We don't put anything forward. We don't pray in our name because we've done, we've, we haven't you know, done anything evil this week. I haven't killed anyone. Hear my prayer. This is why we pray in Jesus' name. Because we understand we might pray things that are wrong. We always pray that God's will be done. But we pray through Jesus because he is our mediator. And just because you pray a prayer doesn't mean that God is going to answer that prayer, particularly how we think about it. But a great challenge for us, especially as Peter points out, husbands, we need to be cautious about our actions and seeking to be able to glorify God so that our prayers are not hindered. But again, that truth that is found here in in verse 42 is that just because we cry out to God does not mean that he hears us or answers us challenging thing but again we need to walk cautiously part 12 says that 40 uh, verses 44 to 46 spoken to God you delivered me from the strife among the nations here you see in verse 44 to 46 you delivered me from the strife with my people you kept me as the head of the nations people whom I had not known served me foreigners came cringing to me as far as soon as they heard of me They obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. Again, David looks back on his reign as as a king and he looks at how other nations have even dealt with him. You think about this little boy in the shepherd watching his flock and, and when they're looking for a king, Jesse doesn't even think to be able to go get him. But yet God brings the lowly shepherd and brings him and makes him the prince of his people. And he says that all these other nations came and and they heard of me and they they, they started to serve me. I didn't even know who some of them are. But he gives glory to God that God used him. And it's only because of God that he remains king. He understands this right at the very start in chapter 5. That David knew the Lord established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. He understands that God is the one who's done it, and God has done it for his purpose and his means, his glory, not David's, to be able to prove his testimony and, and promises that have been fulfilled in the past. David understands this, and as he's looking back, he understands this. He said, you delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as head of the nations. You're the one who has done all these things. He understands he's been the one fighting in the battles, God is the one who's protected him, trained him, given him strength. But also other nations have been able to come. God is the one who has established David as king, and God is the one who could unestablish him as king if he saw fit. We saw this in the period of life, when David, in David's life, when Absalom sought his father's crown. 
And he said, whatever the Lord wills. But we also notice something during David's reign, that something that we've highlighted in the past is that other nations come and serve him. When you have all the people of Israel going and, and worshiping false idols, worshiping, trying to follow false kings, but you have all these other nations that come to be able to serve David, the true king. They hear of what David, who David is and what he has done. Even think about Rahab in the walls of Jericho. Somehow she hears about how David, uh, how God had defeated the two kings and also defeated, freed them from the slavery, house of slavery under Pharaoh. She becomes a true worshiper of God. And so too David is saying, all these other people come and serve me as king. But again, how David's kingdom is, is, a, is a smaller reflection of Jesus' kingdom. Is this not how Jesus' kingdom works? That we go forth and spread the news about our king, and as we spread the news about our king, they come down and serve him. They come over. As the Great Commission is written in Acts, Holy Spirit will come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The nations may come and serve the true and living King Jesus. The goal of the church, her mission of the church, is global domination. Now, when I say that, you think military terms and not in military terms. But global domination is as in more this organic way that disciples are made throughout all the nations as they come to be able to obey and observe all that the King, the, the King Jesus has taught us to do. They worship Him, obey their Master across the whole world. Part 13, in verse 47 to 49, spoken about God. I praise Yahweh for his steadfast love. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and brought down peoples under me, who brought me out of my, from my enemies and exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. David again here praises God. But he also shows these great things that God has done. That he is the one who has made David's name great. David in all humility shows that it is God is the one who has done these great things. He uses David, but David does not then seek to be able to glorify God. That God gave me vengeance. And brought down people under me. That it is God who brought me out from my enemies. That it is God who has lifted him up above these who rose against me. That it is God who delivered him. Again, as he started. In verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I will take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You shall save me from violence. And here he says that he has. The Lord lives. Blessed be the rock. Exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. He repeats all these things of what he has done. These bracketing verses of how he began, how he ended. But he hasn't finished yet. He has two verses left. That's the last part in part 14. Verses 50 to 51. Spoken to God. For this I will extol you. 
among the nations. Verse 50 to 51. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king, and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. For this, a summary statement summarizing all that we've read about, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, for this, all that we've even just read about in chapter 23, for this, the one who has delivered him, given him strength, been his rock, his salvation, his, his stronghold, for this I will praise you. Again, the sweet psalmist of David comes out once more of this praise unto God. This praise is done among the nations. Sing praises to your name. Think about all of David's life and all that God has done. What a list. What a list even if we were to go through chapter 22 once more. List all the things that God has done for David. And David understands that he as the king is is a worshiper of God. To God be the glory, great things he has done. And here David points this out. David finishes with, you almost could have a whole three-point sermon. I'm not going to do that to you. But notice in verse 51, Great salvation he brings to his king. He shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. He has his king, speaking of David, uh, the Lord's king, the Lord's anointed, and then David's offspring, his anointed. David, the great example of the godly king who sees himself underneath God. He's not his own king. There was no king in Israel as judges ends, and every di- everyone did what is right in his own sight. David understands that he's not his own, that he is the Lord's, he's been bought. He sees himself as a servant of God, not above God. Now think again of Saul in chapter 15. The Lord tells him to do something, and he does it his own way, not the way the Lord said his anointed that David has set apart for God and God's purposes. The last line is what I really want you to think about, that last part. Here it says that God shows this great salvation, his steadfast love, that has said word to David's offspring forever. Here, if you ever were to understand the faith of David and looking forward to Christ to come, I think this is a great verse to be able to understand. That here David shows that he understood the promise given to him in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He knows that God's covenant of faithfulness is based upon God and not his own actions. That Jesus Christ, the one whom David speaks of in this verse, here is the one who will bring about this great salvation, who does fulfill and satisfy all of this steadfast love. This this point of David's offspring forever is found even in the New Testament. That David's son would be the one who is the Messiah. This is underneath that category of the, the terminology of offspring of David. Paul makes it clear in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Remember Christ Jesus risen from the dead 
the offspring of David, is preached in my gospel. Or Matthew chapter 1, he, in the very beginning, who's the first connection that Matthew writes down about the genealogy of Jesus Christ, David and Abraham. Here Matthew connects it all the way back to David's promises, 2 Samuel chapter 7, to the promises given to, to Abraham in 12, 15, 17 or even in Romans chapter 1, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, was declared to be the Son of God in the power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Here David looks forward and says, the great salvation he brings to his king. He shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever, that this great salvation he brings to the king. This gift of this kingdom given to the God, uh, God the Father to the Son. These promises and what God speaks of this salvation that David knew. That it is God's salvation and steadfast love that would come to his offspring. And in the last of his days, he understood this all too well. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.